Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 10th, 2019, the great and unmatched wisdom edition. That could be every edition of the Gab Fest in my view. There's only great and unmatched wisdom here. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Providing the great wisdom is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York. Hello, John. Hi. And providing the unmatched wisdom is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and of Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. Huh. What kind of wisdom are you offering? <laughs> None. I don't have to <laughs> offer any wisdom. Okay. I'm I'm like uh, I'm you know how in the Socratic dialogues there's the the Dumbos who ask questions and that Socrates just kind of demolishes that's me that's my not role not at all not who, at all never his name is my name is like anaphylaxis 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 shock on today's gabfest the president is obstructing the impeachment investigation will it cost him then the Supreme Court kicks off a big big term with one of the biggest gay and trans rights cases ever. We will discuss that. Then, should Bernie Sanders end his campaign because he had a heart attack last week? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And, my friends, we have such good news to continue to announce about our Conundrum Live Show. So, as we mentioned last week, we're doing our annual Conundrum Live Show in Oakland, California at the Fox Theater on December 18th. You should go to slate.com slash live to get tickets and get more information. Again, in Oakland on December 18th. And we also seek your conundrums. We can't just manufacture all those amazing conundrums out of our out of our feverish little brains. We need your help. So if you have had a dilemma about, you know, fishes and trees, about about uh, the best way to spend a billion dollars, about whatever it is, you should tweet us with hashtag conundrum, your conundrum, or go to slate.com slash conundrum. And there's a special Google form you can fill out there and send us your conundrum. So slate.com slash conundrum, or to do it by Twitter, hashtag conundrum, and send it to us at SlateGabFest. Also, one more thing. Our friends at Future Tense have a new book. It's an anthology of original science fiction about the future. It's a great set of stories. I have it at my bedside. I've been reading it. They are celebrating that anthology with a terrific series of free events in New York, D.C., San Francisco, and Phoenix. For example, here in D.C., they're going to be at the Smithsonian Arts and Industries building, cool building, on the evening of October 22nd. So go to slate.com slash live to get more information about that. Impeachment impeaches impeachably along this week. The most dramatic moment of the week, well, except for the incredible uh, furor about the Syria, President Trump's betrayal of the Kurds in Syria, which is also implicated in impeachment, which we'll talk about. But the most dramatic moment and probably its most important moment, was at the last minute, the Trump administration barred EU ambassador Gordon Sundland, who is central in all the Ukraine chicanery, from testifying to the House of Representatives, and then issued a letter, which was a blanket refusal to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry, saying it was sort of improper. It was an improper, abusive inquiry. So, Emily, on what grounds is the administration refusing to cooperate and how is that going to change the progress of impeachment? Is it, is, are these grounds legitimate? It's an amazing letter. Uh, <laughs> I can't find a lawyer who I respect who thinks it's legitimate. The argument is that the president gets to decide whether an impeachment inquiry by Congress, a supposedly co-equal branch of government, is warranted or not. And the president thinks this one is coming out of partisan bias. And so he's not participating in it. He has put a full halt on any cooperation with the impeachment inquiry. 
And so this is a kind of classic constitutional crisis um, in which you have not a completely clear set of instructions, or at least not a detailed set of instructions in the Constitution, and two branches clashing over what it means and how to proceed, and no real clear path forward. Emily, you're, uh, it is quite true that the um, the Constitution basically leaves it up to the House majority and to how they want to um, structure impeachment, but... In the letter, um, it, it says the president, the, the sort of first point, the first point in the second paragraph of the letter said that it denies the president the right to cross-examine witnesses. Now, it doesn't mean cross-examine the president wouldn't do it himself, but presumably it means the president's lawyer. The House never allows the president's lawyer to cross-examine witnesses as far as I can tell. So, right, I think this is a confusion about the different stages of impeachment, right? So in the trial in the Senate, then you could expect to be cross-examining witnesses as the party um, – you know, under the under the gun, so to speak. But in the House, that's not what an impeachment proceeding is. It's more like the indictment or charging stage of a criminal case, although, of course, it's not a criminal case at all. Right. And so, so but you're being overly you're being overly generous when you say it's a confusion because of course they know that um, they know that they're that you don't cross examine witnesses in the House and that there's a, a procedure here that's been around for hundreds of years. And so it's what that letter seems to do is say basically um, the House is not following the procedure and then misstating what the procedure is for the purposes of muddying the waters. Absolutely. I mean, I think the letter is all about muddying the waters and making this a partisan political fight as opposed to giving any legitimacy to the very structure of the House's proceedings. And politically speaking, I see why Trump is choosing that path. It's the path that he always chooses. It will work with his base. It's not clear that uh, senators, Republican senators, will object. I mean, so far, they've gone for basically everything he has wanted in this arena. And it raises this sort of trickiness of delay and What's supposed to happen when? So the Democrats could argue they already have a lot of evidence that Donald Trump should be impeached. But on the other hand, they don't want to rush. And so then if the proceedings continue along but they don't yield any new exciting evidence because none is forthcoming from the White House, then that could make the public think the case is kind of eroding over time. I think the Democrats are hoping they'll be able to pull in some evidence from private citizens. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of – administration officials, or I should say government officials, uh, the former ambassador to the Ukraine, Marie Yavanovich and Bill Taylor, who worked on Ukraine issues for the State Department, they could quit their jobs and testify. Uh, you know, maybe there are other people already in private life who will come forward and actually add something important. There's the second whistleblower uh, hovering out there. But I think the it's just a, a political tactic on the president's part that delay will help him. So, Emily, just to, to stay on this uh, delay question or the, the blockage question, what will happen with with this? How, how will the, so the, the House will subpoena people? They will refuse to show for the subpoenas. They will refuse to present documents. And then what will happen? And then I think Adam Schiff, who is helping to run this inquiry for the Democrats, will put together a detailed article of impeachment about obstruction of justice that lists all the unanswered requests. And so from the point of view of impeaching Trump, all the non-cooperation and the stonewalling will be held against him. And then again, like the question is, how is that going to play? And I hate to be always framing it in those political rather than legal terms, but this is a political process we're talking about. Uh, and because it happens rarely, I mean, John, of course, you're right. There are these established rules, but I don't think the public has or I don't have a clear notion about like how everything's supposed to unfold in a way that would make it universal that what Trump is doing is totally out of bounds. So. Emily, this is not a case where the Supreme Court will have to ultimately decide whether the administration has to disgorge materials and present people to testify. I or or is it the case where these are just two co-equal branches of government? The Supreme Court will be like, sorry, that's this is just not ours to deal with. These these are branches need to work it out themselves. Well, that's a huge question, and I think there are two factors weighing into it. The first is whether the delay that it would take this case 
to go through the courts, like for Congress to challenge Trump's decision not to comply with the subpoenas. That would get tied up in litigation, just like the previous subpoenas from the House that the White House is not complying with are already tied up in litigation. It takes a long time for that all to work itself out in the courts. Again, that delay, I think, would help Trump. And I think the Democrats will wager that. And then so maybe they don't go to court at all because they don't want to invite that kind of slow walking. And then the other question is, as you said, what would the Supreme Court do? There is a really good op-ed in The Times by Noah Feldman, law professor Noah Feldman, about this. And he says, and he says he's just guessing, and it's like, I think it's a good guess that, you know, we have really well-established rules and law that the executive, the president can challenge certain subpoenas as being too invasive, but there's nothing that suggests he can just blanket say, like, I'm walking away from this. I don't want to participate in it. And so presumably the four liberal moderate justices would rule in that direction. And then the question is what the five conservatives would do. They might take refuge in what you were just alluding to, David, this idea that when you have a clash between the executive and the legislature, the judges stay out of it. They just say, this is a political question. We're not going to decide it. It's not our place. And it's possible there could be five votes for that position. Although Noah, at the end of his op-ed, suggests he thinks that Chief Justice Roberts, who's very concerned about the court's legitimacy, would stick up for all of the law and precedent on the other side. But as he says, that's just a guess. And the the Democrats, particularly given the problem of delay, may not want to take that risk. So, John, what do you what do you think this precedent of non-cooperation does for the functioning of government in the future? I, my own view is that it's fairly devastating because we're moving yeah. toward a model with pure executive power. It's happening a few steps at a time. This is a huge step towards gutting the legislature's mm-hmm. power, especially if the Supreme Court doesn't step in, as Emily suggests, they, they might not. They might not have the chance or they might just sort of throw up their hands. Well, I think we've already – so, yes, there's what, – what you say um, is right, which is that, that, that you, you end up having a situation where basically the ability of one branch to, to do oversight, to, to check the power of the other, which is the whole reason the sh- system of shared powers was set up, you basically – that that gets deleted. Um, and that that is the equipoise that was required to launch the entire American experiment. Uh, and so, and the reason you did that, the reason they did that is because they knew that the power of the presidency, as circumscribed as they tried to make it, was so great that they had to have something to get in the way uh, between the ambition of a president, which they knew every one of them, even George Washington, would have, and the further extension of that ambition um, and and use of power, which they knew no president could resist because presidents were flawed humans, and that was... So they set up an entire system to slow a president down and check a president. So if that's gone, that's a big problem. But I think we don't you don't even have to get that far before you see the degradation of the institutions, which is quite damaging. So you have Kevin McCarthy, who's the the minority leader in the House, a Republican in the House, saying uh, on on Fox News, think about if you went through a trial, but you weren't allowed to call any witnesses. That's what Speaker Pelosi is doing to President Trump right now. So. The minority leader of the House knows better. He knows what the he knows how the House works. He knows how impeachment works. He knows better. What he's doing is, despite knowing better about the institutional role and institutional rules of the body that he's a member of, he's basically burning all that and saying this is a rigged process and um, the president is being railroaded by a rigged process when he knows better. And what so what he's doing in that instance, we're not we don't even have to get to the Supreme Court yet. He has special knowledge because he's been entrusted with care of the institution as all members of the institution are entrusted with its care. And yet he's saying basically these rules we operate by, he's he's denying that he knows them and then saying it's a rigged system. And that, I think, has costs because it basically says to anybody, this system is is rigged and and uh, and and illegitimate. There may be lots of other reasons it's rigged and Ill- illegitimate, but that's not one of them. And so th- that, again, erodes the institutions that are required to adjudicate these things. The reason the institutions and structures exist is because conflict happens and you need a way to sort it so that you don't, you know, resort to punching each other. And remember, also, we're at this moment where impeachment is the possible remedy because we just went through a long period in which 
the idea of prosecuting the president in any sort of criminal way was taken off the table, right? So it's like, you can't prosecute me. I didn't, you know, I mean, Trump claims he didn't commit any criminal violations, of course, but he also said, you just can't do that. And now they're saying you can't do impeachment. And then in other litigation in New York, the state DA in Manhattan, Cy Vance, has been trying to get Trump's tax returns in a investigation of the Trump organization. In that case, the government of the United States is saying that a state prosecutor cannot even investigate the president. So we're talking about like total impunity here. Right. A theory there, of total this, impunity. Yes. Just to, to just say what Emily said in maybe in a couple of different words, it, they're saying on in the state court, they're saying state courts, prosecutors have no right to investigate the president because that is Congress's job. And then they're telling Congress, you have no <laughs> right to investigate, investigate the president. We will not cooperate with you at all. Precisely. And so nobody has the right to investigate the president. Right. So, John, what import is there in the fact that public support for impeachment and removal yeah. has risen significantly over the past few weeks? Is that really important to me? Can uh, I also just put my finger on the scale here? Which sure. is, it looks to me like all that's happened is that the people who are all the people who are anti-Trump have gone into the impeachment is good, and the people who are supporting Trump basically are like, don't impeach. And it hasn't fundamentally changed the political dynamics of the country. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, we, uh, when you have one poll that has 25 percent of Republicans saying that the impeachment inquiry is um, is valid, that's a pretty high number when you have sorting and partisanship of the way we have now. I mean, the president has nearly 90 90 percent support in his own party. So you've got some number of people who previously supported him and maybe even still support him who nevertheless think the impeachment inquiry is is worthwhile. That's a shift. So what does that mean? The reason the polls are moving is it's a relatively simple story. The president is the central player in it. People have things that they can view with their own eyes, which is to say they can read the summary of the phone call. They can also hear that amazingly in parallel uh, people with distinguished records came to the exact same conclusion about what the administration was up to in terms of pressuring Ukraine uh, to go look into this. And there's a kind of weakness in the defense of the president that's been it's shifted. It's moved around. It's moving the ball. Um, and and no, there's been no clear kind of rebuttal. Uh, and when you have messy uh, responses, it kind of uh, supports the underlying claim. Now, is that putting any pressure on Republicans to move, which is what needs to happen? No, it doesn't appear to be. But I do think you have two things, and, and I'll briefly bring in Syria. The president uh, uh, basically abandoned the Kurds who were U.S. allies that were used to fight ISIS. Um, and while some people might uh, think hey, that's John, a good they idea. didn't help out at Normandy. They didn't help out in Normandy. So what David They weren't helping out in World War II. What, what kind of allies are those guys? What David's referring to is the president was asked about the, the Kurds and he said they didn't help out at Normandy, which is which I'll get to in a second. But let's go back to um, what is there to get to. Anyway, well, go ahead. Uh, well, whatever <laughs> there is to get to, whoever's oh running and listening to this has now stopped because they have no idea what we're talking about. So going back to the president, he abandons the <laughs> Kurds. Um, he, he abandons the Kurds to the Turks who uh, now go and attack them. I think this matters because you have somebody like Nikki Haley, who a, a suburban Republican voter who might have not liked Donald Trump but voted for them. They do like Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley tweets that the president has basically left our allies to die. That's pretty strong language for Nikki well, Haley. Well, she's right. Turkey invaded. Some people died. And this is so in other words, these are these are people who have standing in the Republican Party who are saying that the president has made this awful, terrible decision. That decision is very similar to Ukraine. He basically went outside of the structure, did something basically unilaterally on his own, and it's caused all of these negative consequences. In this case, the negative consequences is people are dying, people who were allies of the United States. So I think that's a situation in where you see a disordered presidency creating bad real-world consequences for basically the same thing, which is a president who's motivated by politics with little regard for political expertise or legal, or I should say policy expertise, legal boundaries or institutional restraints. When you combine those two things, I do think you can see a situation where people say either support for impeachment or they say, you know, four more years of this is not what we want. 
Emily, do you think the Syria abandonment, which has really infuriated certain conservatives and certain people in the Republican Party. And and everybody else and a lot of and, other people, too, like and me. And a lot of other Go people, ahead. too. Do you think that that is uh, going to be a significant factor in the impeachment or, or not? Do you think it's just noise, weekly noise? It's definitely not just noise because people are dying. I think, you know, whether the Republican objections to it are sustained and whether they translate into any other deeper concerns about Trump being elected as reelected, as John just said, like that I'm not sure about. But I think that this is the kind of spectacle that um, it, it has to have our attention because it's just so upsetting. And, I, you know, one more thing about this, it troubled me so much to hear Pompeo, when he was asked about this on television, give this completely not believable account that the president was taking our troops out of harm's way when, in fact, the removal of our troops was done at the behest of Turkey to allow them to invade. And then the last thing is I don't understand this from the point of view. It is such a small force, right? There are a thousand troops in this part of Syria holding the peace. It was only the removal of 50 troops that gave the green light to Turkey to invade. I mean, if you're talking, even if you're talking about a kind of permanent police force in this part of the world, it seems like the benefits of stability, of protecting ourselves against ISIS, given that big prison nearby with 11,000 ISIS captives in it, not to mention the Kurds, you know, how we're ever going to get any allies to work with us again in this kind of circumstance, like the whole thing is pretty breathtaking. It is astonishing. There is so much rot in this administration. I mean, it, one is reminded, of course, that President Trump has huge business interests in Turkey that he cares mm. about. And so he has he's got deep susceptibility to strong men like Erdogan. So he just likes them. And so I'm sure Erdogan charmed him. But Trump also has business interests that are important to him. So he, I'm sure, wants Turkey to be uh, on his side, not on somebody else's side, so that his, his stupid hotel thrives. And so there's that corruption. There's this now, this other story, just coming back to Ukraine for a minute, that Rick Perry, the energy secretary, was also trying to strong arm the government of Ukraine to stack a powerful advisory board in Ukraine that dealt, deals with natural gas to stack to stack that board with his cronies, with political cronies who could do him favors. And Giuliani may have been helping out with that as well. Also, this other story about Giuliani kind of trying to get Rex Tillerson to pardon somebody who was violating Iran sanctions, who was a client of his. The amount of just sheer daggum, just classic corruption? blackmail, corruption, extortion, favor doing. It's astonishing with these people. It is just mind boggling how much there is acting like a mobster, acting like like a criminal, using the government as to advance their personal business interests corruptly. And it's 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 just breathtaking and shocking and and so sad if i can go back to a minute for a minute on the on whether there is any pressure where the political pressure comes here it does there are two other things that are seem to be a part of this when you talked about normandy david in that same press conference when the president was asked about his move and he said the kurds didn't help us in normandy which is to say essentially uh you know they weren't that helpful you remember that that a big discussion about how to defeat ISIS revolved around getting essentially proxy forces to do the U.S.'s work for it because of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq had had sapped the country's interest in these kinds of things. Even Rand Paul was down with having the Kurds go after ISIS. And so this was the solution to the previous problem. So they've been the solution to the previous problem that are now being abandoned. But in that same press conference, the president basically said... Uh, well, the foreign fighters that are uh, part of ISIS are going back to Europe. And, you know, that's their problem. Uh, the, the foreign fighters that would go back as a result of this new condition in which Turkey is in control and the Kurds are under threat. Um, and we should also mention, by the way, Turkey is a, is a NATO ally, which makes some larger complexity of this issue. But other NATO allies are in Europe, and the president's basically saying, well, you know, now they'll have to deal with those um, with those foreign fighters the previous strategy in Syria was actually to encircle the ISIS fighters because some of them were foreign European fighters. In the U.S., because they work in concert with their allies, were basically killing those guys before they went back to Europe because they know that if they go back to Europe, they'll not only hurt U.S. partners in Europe, but they can get on planes and come to the United States. So that's been thrown out the window. But the, the attitude towards European allies in that press conference 
kicked U.S. allies in the shins, um, which is the kind of behavior that takes place when you get into these disordered moments. And every Republican, because they don't challenge the president, signs up for this now. So they've not just signed up for a variety of other things related to Ukraine or the Kurds, but now they've signed up to basically having this casual attitude towards European allies, which they don't actually believe. And my point is that this is the kind of thing that makes it ever more difficult to to be um, to be so supportive of the president, and yet nobody's broken. One final very quick point is a smart listener of the show uh, made the case that what what's different with Ukraine is that it does provide an off-ramp that, that, that perhaps Republicans would say, I was with him until this moment, and this is so particular that, um, you know, I'm not with him. Um, and that there's something special and narratively clean about this that would allow that to happen. What about so, Syria, John? Does Syria also have that? Like if you for some reason don't it, – it just you're thinking politically and you're a Republican in Washington. Maybe you don't want to take impeachment, but what about Syria? Yeah, well, I, I think you could, but then then you have to build your larger case, which is to say I'm distancing myself or I'm breaking from the president because he did something here that was so objectionable. The challenge, though, is whether is when somebody would say, OK, but how in that instance did he do anything that was I know the outcome is worse because actual human beings are dying. But everything that he did leading up to it, which is to say blowing off his experts, acting impulsively, blowing through the institutional restraints of, of the system, he's been doing that repeatedly throughout the administration, and you've not said anything about that. So uh, why now? So And that's been, that's been a kind of constraint on anybody breaking from the president, as, as I understand it from conversations with them, uh, up to this point. But I, I think you do have something different here because of um, because you do you are going to have pictures of people actually dying as a result of the president's policies. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the Gabfest and other Slate podcasts. This week, we're going to talk about the NBA's face-off with China over free speech. Go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a, a member today. This episode of the Gabfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The first Monday in October, a red-letter day on the Bazelon calendar arrived this week. Emily, what are the big cases the Supreme Court is going to consider this term which are you most excited about? And then we'll get to the big argument that already happened. I don't know if I'm excited about anything. I'm more sort of living in, Dreading. in terror. Exactly. There are so many big cases. I am going to leave some out. There are crucial cases about the dreamers and other aspects of immigration law coming up. There's an abortion case, which hasn't been scheduled yet, but will be heard at some point this spring. Uh, we're about to talk about this big case involving whether it's legal to fire LGBT people at work that had super interesting argument this week. And that's like only scratching the surface. Oh, there's a big, the first guns rights case in nine years is going to come up in the beginning of December. I mean, it's really a term in which the court is already hitting some of the most contested areas of American life. And this is before we know that the court will be weighing in on some aspect of presidential power, which, you know, is still possible. So let's go to the case they've already heard. They heard argument this week on three conjoined cases involving whether 
1964 statute barring sex discrimination effectively also bars discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So two cases involving gay employees who were fired essentially for being gay and one involving a trans employee who was fired after announcing their sexual identity. So what are the issues at play in this case? And and why is it okay? I mean, I think one question that a lot of people have is homosexuality was illegal in 1964 across most of the U.S. and certainly wasn't contemplated in the statute itself. So why would it be okay for for that to be added or or implicit in, in the statute, even though it was clearly not something that Congress contemplated at the time? Yeah. So when Congress passed the Civil Rights Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which addresses employment in 1964, Congress banned discrimination on the basis of sex. And in some areas of law, for the most part, we've assumed that discriminating against someone on the basis of their sexual orientation is different than discrimination on the basis of sex. But what these cases do is they kind of go back to the language and they say, well, wait a second. One's sex, one's classification as male or female are essential to these discrimination suits because if you're a man who loves other men, well, then you're being discriminated against because your sexual orientation goes back to your sex, right? Like those two things are kind of tied together. There is some law supporting this. There's a decision from the 1990s in which Justice Scalia, you know, one of the court's arch conservatives, said that a man who was being basically like harassed and bullied for being gay could sue under Title VII on the basis of sex discrimination. So that's one case that kind of begins to lead in this direction. And then when you're thinking about trans people and trans identity, it seems, I think, more intuitive that it's their sexual identity that's at stake. And there is decades of law protecting trans people from discrimination under Title VII. So with regard to that lawsuit, if the Supreme Court said, oh, it's fine to fire people under Title VII if they are trans, that would actually be a real shift in the legal thinking. So, I mean, these are really interesting questions of how we think about one's biological sex versus one's sexual preferences. But you can see that if you're looking at the words on the page, which is something that some of the court's justices, including Neil Gorsuch, its newest member, that's what Gorsuch says his method is. And if you're thinking about that, then this idea that like, oh, Congress didn't have this in mind in 1964 starts to seem less important. Is that the grounds on which somebody like Gorsuch would build uh, their response, that it just isn't, that the language just isn't in there, and then that's, the protection doesn't exist? No, Gorsuch thinks the language Gorsuch's is the in there. He's the opposite. Okay, yeah. sorry, I, I was yeah. confused. All right, no, no, just... it's fine. You were just giving voice to the view of Justice Alito, who doesn't have, like, a strict method that he follows, and Alito basically said at the oral argument Basically, like, this is absurd. Congress wasn't thinking about protecting people from being fired on the basis of sexual orientation when they wrote Title VII. So, like, what are we doing here? And it was Kagan who said, well, wait a second. Our normal method of statutory interpretation is to look at the text. And then Gorsuch had this, for me, fascinating moment where he said, okay, to the plaintiff's lawyer, okay, so assume I'm with you on the textualist matter. Well, now I want you to think about the, quote, massive social upheaval that would arise if we did what you wanted and whether Congress didn't have, wasn't thinking about that in 1964. And so for reasons of judicial modesty, we should not rule in your behalf. But, and so, okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah ask Well, a no, I was going to say, but then, but if, if Congress was making decisions on protecting women, that's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty big portion of the population that it's making a decision about. So its goals weren't modest. Good point. And also, there is no massive social upheaval. Like, literally, what was he talking about, right? And so, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, I'm just going (laughs) to, I just need to align myself with you. That, I I cannot stand that argument that there's going to be this huge social upheaval if trans people are not going to be fired for being trans or gay people are not going to be fired for being gay. It's ridiculous. Or that, or that, you know, suddenly this total mythology, this canard that every bathroom is going to be overrun. It's like no one's going to know what bathroom to go to and they're going to be predators in every bathroom. It's just 
complete errant nonsense. And well, it, yeah, there was a lot of questions about bathrooms. Yes, no, you're right. But also, even more basically, the lawyer Gorsuch was addressing in that moment was the lawyer for the transgender plaintiff, who has had the law on their side for like 20 years. And so the lawyer for the plaintiff said that. He said, well, for 20 years, federal courts of appeals have been finding in just the way you're worrying about and there's been no upheaval. And then Gorsuch basically said, well, are you going to address these arguments? Like as if he hadn't answered the question. And then the lawyer said, well, but I did answer anyway. So when Gorsuch asked the question of somebody who's got the best answer in the room, is he in that instance... I mean, tell me about how the ball bounces in these public arguments. Is he creating essentially a fact record by asking this question of the lawyer representing the trans side in order to basically get it on record that there is a fine rebuttal to that question of of social upheaval? I mean, that's a good question. It was hard to tell what his motivation was. And he can look into the briefs um, for material, you know, that provides evidence for what he wants to argue. He can also go outside the briefs if he wants. It's not like a hard and fast rule that he has to stay within those confines. I think what was telling about this moment is what David was getting at, which is that You know, look, in polls, most Americans say that they already think it's illegal to fire gay and trans people for being gay or trans. In some states, it is indeed illegal. We just don't have – we haven't until now had an interpretation of national law that provides those protections. And, you know, one answer to all this is like, well, it's Congress's job to fix fix this problem. And that is one clean answer, right? I mean, Congress could go ahead and pass the statute. There's been a statute that's been proposed. But that hasn't happened so far. And so, you know, this is one of many instances in which we're harking back to laws of an earlier era and asking or some people are asking courts to reinterpret them essentially because Congress doesn't make laws anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it, but that's a really interesting question because the, the court is not wrong as it wasn't when you think about the the marriage equality cases. There, there was a very reasonable argument to say this is something that should be, you know, that legislators that legislature should decide and that the court weighed in. But the court weighed in basically because the Congress is incapable of its doing its job now. But is the court obliged to, to consider the fact that Congress is incapable of doing its job when it is at work or or should it not consider that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a really deep question. Like the same-sex marriage cases, one could argue that what's been happening is that a a few federal appeals courts around the country have been – finding that Title VII does indeed contain this protection. And like the sky didn't fall, right? I mean, this is also what we saw with marriage equality that, you know, the early ruling, the first ruling was from the Supreme Court in Massachusetts providing for marriage equality. And people thought at the time, like, there's going to be a huge backlash to this. It's really dangerous. And that didn't happen. And then that made it easier for other courts to follow along. And so you're not having a kind of sudden declaration from the Supreme Court about a kind of area of law in which we don't have any evidence or there have been no lower court decisions. But you could also say, well, that's lovely, but it's all within the judicial branch. And really, we do want legislators to be the ones um, making these decisions. And indeed, in some states, legislators have acted, right? The question is what we do about the states where they haven't. Let's change to a couple of the other cases, Emily. So of the other big cases that seem contentious, the Louisiana abortion case does seem to me really important because it's essentially the, exactly the same case that the court considered just three years ago when it involved the state of Texas. And in that case, the Supreme Court with Justice Kennedy siding with the majority threw out a Texas law that would have really constrained abortion throughout Texas by requiring doctors to get admitting privileges in local hospitals, which is very hard for them to get abortion providers to get that because because hospitals and the state makes it hard for them to get it. And now Louisiana has the same, essentially the same law. And it seems to me that that this is going to, they're going to just reverse themselves, right? 
Well, I mean, we'll see. But what you said is all true. The only thing that has changed between this ruling in 2016, striking down the law in Texas, and now is the composition of the court. And so it is a kind of classic test of how much justices respect precedent, right, past decisions. There's no hard and fast rule about this. You know, we have this idea called stare decisis from the Latin that in general, it's good to respect previous decisions of the court because that helps the law be stable and people rely on law and like that's kind of generally how it should go. But we all agree that it's good that like the court you know, reverse Plessy versus Ferguson, which provided for separate but equal facilities, that was a really bad decision that we were absolutely right to get rid of. And so because there isn't a hard and fast rule about when to respect precedent, justices can make up their own minds. And I think for the conservatives on the court who, it's clear, oppose abortion, the question is, what do you do about this 2016 precedent, which, let's be clear, is hugely important. I mean, what's at stake here is whether most clinics in the state close or stay open. In Louisiana, they're already only three clinics, two of the three would close if this law is allowed to go into effect. Emily, one of the questions which you nodded at earlier, just to, just to close out this segment, how concerned do you think this court is about legitimacy? Uh, because it is, it is moving very far to the right and away from where public opinion is, not necessarily away from where the, where Congress is or where the president is, but away from where public opinion is. How how much does that matter to these justices, do you think? I think it matters a great deal to Chief Justice John Roberts. It's pretty paramount for him. I mean, one thing you can say about the last several years on the court is that in the end in June, on those last days when everybody is paying attention, or at least more people are paying attention, it always feels like there's something for everyone, right? So, Yes, you know, the court does something that Republicans cheer, but there's also a case in the last term, it was the census case, where liberals feel like, okay, there is some limit, some way that, you know, our what's important, our values are also still being expressed by this court. And I think that Robert is going to continue to look for those opportunities and that he wants the court to thread a needle. It is not at all clear that the other four conservatives share that deep commitment. They have a lot of things they want to do, and some of them seem like they're in a big rush. I think for the court's liberal moderates, it the the main task is to try to peel off different conservative justices by making appeals that seem like they're really well suited for those particular justices. I think that's what you saw Kagan do this week in the LGBT case with Gorsuch, and you can look for lots more of that to come. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. 
This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Bernie Sanders had a heart attack last week and had two stents installed to allow blood to flow through key arteries around his heart. Sanders is 78 years old, but he had been keeping up a ferocious schedule, four rallies a day, and he has had a lifetime of of reasonable, of rude good health, in fact. (laughs) He's out of the hospital. He just spent a million, million plus on a TV ad buy, also raised $25 million in the third quarter. So his campaign had been active. He had been sinking a little bit in the polls, but he'd been an extremely active campaigner. So John, my view is his campaign is over. The only question is whether he decides to walk away or to lose in caucuses and primaries. Is that correct? I mean, there, he has other challenges and had other challenges before he had a health challenge. So, which included pre-stent question, questions or kind of uh, middling concerns about his age. So, it's kind of hard to take this one th- one thing out. But um, for a candidate who was facing pressure from Elizabeth Warren, you know, and, and then also had to just navigate the, the challenge that the, 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 the larger Democratic Party uh, voters are not all as liberal as Bernie Sanders. Those were two big, big problems before this. So I, this, you know, obviously doesn't, doesn't help. And so I think his chances were, were narrowing before it happened. And I think they've narrowed more, but there's a big thing, which is that there are Bernie Sanders supporters are really locked in, in a way that you don't see with other candidates. And so I think he sticks around. And also, he's been such an effective message candidate in terms of changing the shape of the Democratic Party and the conversation that um, he can still have a part to play that will be significant in shaping who the ultimate nominee is, whether he wins, whether he stays, whether he wins or not. Emily, do you think he should stop his campaign? he has to stop his campaign. I mean, Bernie's been such an effective messenger for what he wants to say. I feel like he's he's really important in um, stating these matters of principle and kind of sharpening the arguments that Democrats have to contend with. You know, I don't always think it's like helpful to them politically. I think he has pulled them or they have allowed themselves to be pulled too far to the left on um Medicare for all. But I think he really stands for something and he can have a heart attack and just keep going. I mean, what John said about his role shaping the campaign just seems to me like obvious and in a good way, obvious and and legitimate. In a way that this is almost, I mean, not for Bernie Sanders, but for the Democrats, almost the best of all possible situations, which is that he still gets to be kind of this mascot figure Everyone knows now that he's not actually going to get the nomination, so they don't have to worry too much about that. So they can, he can, you can treat his his supporters with dignity and respect, and a hope to winning them over. There's no need to alienate him, no need to alienate them, no need to fight too hard against him because he just doesn't have a chance. And so you you keep the Sanders supporters in the fold, you butter them up to to kind of come to whoever the eventual nominee is, and yet not worry about him too much. Do you think that? This Sanders heart attack is really bad news for Biden, who is similarly old, has a little bit of a kind of slightly out of it old timer quality. I don't think that the Bernie's 
heart attack like slops onto Biden. I mean, Biden is, has been having his own challenges in figuring out how to respond to the attacks on him and Hunter Biden, his son, from Donald Trump. And I think he was not particularly forceful um, in the beginning and now is like trying to um, be clear and talking about it more and, you know, called for impeachment, but also I think has like risen to a more full-throated defense of himself and his family. So I think he's got challenges, but I don't feel like Bernie's heart attack is his problem. John, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think he's got uh, bigger problems, which is the um, which is that people might decide at some point in the Democratic Party, you know, Donald Trump shouldn't have done what he did in the Ukrainian phone call and Donald Trump is uh, bad in all these different ways. But um, it also just wasn't great that Hunter Biden was getting paid an incredible amount of money for five years on something that just doesn't smell right either. They can, those two, those two views can be in the same person's mind and that, that won't, um, that won't be great for Joe Biden. I'm going to say something which is super ageist now. So prepare your, prepare your hateful tweets, people. I don't think anyone should get a new job at age 78. I think it's too old to get a new job. I'm not saying that people shouldn't work at 78 or they shouldn't get a new super demanding job at age 78. I just don't think I'm 49. I'm not sure I should get a new demanding job. It's so hard. 49 at 78. I don't don't believe that about 49 year olds, by the way. Okay. But I do think at 78 that it's that that's really that's it's hard to start a whole new incredibly demanding job. People's. Mental acuity isn't there. Their their flexibility isn't quite as there. Their physical health isn't there. It's just it's it's hard. So you can make that argument without being ageist, which is that by the time you gain that much experience in life, you are succeeding because you have you have a kind of wisdom and pattern recognition that all of your previous experience um, uh, it serves you really well. You make decisions because you kind of know how the world works. But then when you get into the job of the presidency, you can argue the job is actually not following your previous patterns. Um, it's actually unlearning a lot of your previous patterns and having the adaptability and, and mobility to um, learn those new patterns and figure out those new ways, which can be, you could imagine actually a person with a supple kind of mind being better able to do that at an older age than a younger, I guess, or I guess my point is that the blindness of your own experience can blind you at age 50 as well as age 75. But since you've got more experience at 75, you might it might be the case that more people are blinded and it has nothing to do with actual physicality, but more the accumulation of experience. Which isn't to say that experience isn't important, but it has this um, other quality that people don't think about. There, John said it in the non-hateful, smart way. Yes, Thank he you, was very gracious and diplomatic, but I kind of think he essentially agreed with you. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a delicious, delicious martini, as I would be having, I will be having for my cocktail, what will you be chattering about, Emily Bazelon? I am watching with great interest the race for district attorney in San Francisco. So I thought you were about I'm, to say a TV show. I know. I'm watching with great interest <laughs> a TV show. I was excited oh, for a new TV show. Yeah. yeah but go ahead. Um, all right. Fine. I'm working on That's that. Right. I'm working on that. But let's go with this one for now. So uh, as listeners know, I am obsessed with district attorney races. So I'd be interested in this race merely for that reason. But it's got other things going for it. Um, one of the candidates, Chesa Boudin, is a former student and friend of mine. My sister, Lara, is also working on his campaign. And something kind of 
uh, untoward happened in this race last week, which was that the current district attorney stepped down merely three weeks early. And then the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, appointed the district attorney. Susie Loftus, one of the candidates um, who what? is Chase's main opponent. Yes. What? So that, right, so that Loftus could run as an incumbent. And this was after polls showing that Loftus's big problem was that she didn't have enough name recognition in the city. So now she's going to be running as the interim DA. And it's just like a total political machine kind of move that I hope backfires, not just because I think Chazo would be terrific in this job and it will be really interesting to to watch the city um, if that happened, but also because this is just like an anti-democratic, like crappy thing to do. So if you live in San Francisco, pay attention to this race. I'm sure turnout will be low since there's not much else on the ballot. But this is the kind of shenanigans that really should not be rewarded or let um, let slide. And the election is in the beginning of November. John, there's, what's your chatter? David Onik is the only district attorney of San Francisco that I recognize. My uh, chatter is about um, a, a, a gem of a little book called Metropolitan Stories. Uh, and it's a novel um, written by a friend of mine, somebody I've known for a very long time. Um, and uh, her name's Christine Colson. And it's about the Metropolitan Museum and the objects in it from the the perspective of those objects, uh, well, lots of different perspectives, but uh, but the, but um, partially from the objects, and it is um, it's delightful and transporting and surprising, and so if you like, well, if you like reading, but also if you um, <laughs> if you've ever been to the Met, but even if you just have have been, it's just like got, it's got a lot going on. Anyway, so I recommend it. Man, this is log rolling central this week. I'm in a log roll too in my chatter. This is super duper log rolling. Some of you may remember Atlas Obscura a couple of years ago put out a book called Atlas Obscura, an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders. It was a huge bestseller. I hope many of you have it. I hope many of you gave it as gifts. And I'm thrilled to say that this week we are putting out a second edition of that book. It is updated with 100 new places like the Irish Sky Garden, the world's largest beaver dam, the Boiling River, which is this river which literally is boiling. It's so hot. The Milky Seas, the FBI Spy House. Precontinent 2, which is this crazy Jack Cousteau place, the Harp Space Gun, this gigantic gun that was supposed to shoot things into outer space, which is on a beach in the Caribbean, the world's largest conveyor belt, the museum devoted to a single tooth of the Buddha. It is a just a collection of the world's most amazing places. And there are pull-out maps, there's a calendar of world festivals, there are city guides. It is a magnificent book. It is the best present you could give this holiday season to anybody, I assure you. Anybody <laughs> you know who likes to travel it will love this. Um, it is just, it's a totally inspirational. The book is beautiful. You should definitely get it. It's Atlas Obscura, uh, the second edition. It's got a beautiful red cover. I swear to you, you will not be disappointed if you get it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. And I'm, you know, I'm obviously, I have a vested interest in it, but I believe this wholeheartedly and i'm sure emily and john can affirm that having because i've seen that book at their houses so it's awesome i love it my daughter took it so i haven't actually seen it but the fact that she um that, that she has not let go of it is a sign of uh, what you say being true yes kids love it too there are listener chatters this week it is it is slightly daunting. They, every week I have to go through all these listener chatters. They're so good. They take up huge amounts of my time because they're so good. There's so many interesting stories, and it's really hard to choose. So thank you. Please keep tweeting your your chatters to us at, at Slate Gabfest because they're so good. This week, Matthew Zito at, at Matthew Zito points me to a, a Twitter thread from Ben Marrow, and it's about a, an, a paper that was presented by uh, – some economists at a political economy of finance conference in Chicago this weekend. And it's about how fluctuations in the international price of silver can predict the probability of terrorist attacks. That sounds crazy. You're like, how could the price of silver predict terrorist attacks? It's amazing. I don't want to give too much away, but it has to do with rules about Islamic charity, how these rules apply to Sunni families in Pakistan, but not Shia families in Pakistan. And taxation rates in Pakistan and how that you then see a totally distinct pattern of terrorist attacks resulting from fluctuations in the price of silver. It is 
fascinating and bizarre and I, you know it's it's almost like a magic trick when you read through this twitter thread you're like whoa that how did that happen and then you end up persuaded so please check it out GabFest fans, before we go, I want to tell you some exciting news. Today, Slate is launching an important new initiative to examine one of the most essential questions of our time. The question is, who counts? Over the next 13 months, Slate will investigate who counts in the voting booth, who counts as an American, whose money counts in the democratic process, and whose doesn't. Slate will cover stories of Americans whose voices have been silenced, stories of votes diluted, and stories about where power has been chopped down. And Slate wants to hear from you. What else should we cover? Share what's happening in your community by emailing whocounts at slate.com. And you can strengthen the series with your financial support, too. To learn more about this project and how to support it, please go to slate.com slash whocounts. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is the amazing Bridget Dunlap. Melissa Kaplan, engineered here in D.C., Ryan McAvoy, I think, in New Haven, and Chris Buckley at CBS helped John today. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet conundrum to us at slategabfest using hashtag conundrum. And please join us for our annual conundrum show on December 18th in Oakland at the Fox Theater. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets for Emily, Bazelon, and John the Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Really? That's how you are? That's good. Okay. Glad to hear it. So Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, tweeted support last week for Hong Kong protesters. And that outraged people in China. So the Houston Rockets NBA team, they have a rich partnership with the CBA, the Chinese Basketball Association, in part because the president of the CBA is Yao Ming, who was once a star for the Rockets. And that those two teams, are that, that team and that league are well aligned. But the NBA in general has an enormous and growing presence in China. Very, very successful. Basketball is hugely popular in China. Growing Popularity is growing. There was a whole series of events slated for this week with uh, preseason games being played in China, some uh, basketball facilities that were sponsored by the NBA being opened. And as a result of Maury's tweet, which which was this kind of anodyne tweet, but supportive of Hong Kong protesters, uh, the preseason games were taken off Chinese television. The camp that was supposed to open was not opened. And the NBA has responded in this kind of interesting way where at first they were they appeared to be heavy appeasing and apologizing for Maury's tweet and then quickly moved into more of a, you know, Maury, Maury has free expression and that's what our employees and our our people who work at the NBA have the right to express themselves and on personal matters. And that's not the NBA endorsing what he's saying, but it's very much endorsing the idea that his, he has a right to express himself. Um, and Adam Silver, who is in China or who's on his way to China, the NBA commissioner, uh, I think, took a pretty brave stand here. But let's talk about it because currently the NBA is getting battered from both left and right for being for not not being harsh enough towards China and that people are saying they should pull out of China until the Chinese apologize. And then others are saying, well, actually, in fact, people in China are saying, no, the NBA hasn't done nearly enough. So, John, this is not the first company. The NBA is not the first American company to or non-Chinese company to run into trouble. You have The Gap, Givenchy, Tiffany. Uh, there's a, a, a video game company, Activision Blizzard, which this week took away prize money from somebody who had won a video game tournament because that person expressed support for Hong Kong protesters. And there's a whole category of things the Chinese do not want companies that do business there to talk mm -hmm. about, whether it's Tibet, Taiwan, Tiananmen Square protests, now Hong Kong is part of it, maps, you can't make a map of China that doesn't show Taiwan as part of China. Uh, and it's it's just like a whole series of contentious issues. Is are we in a situation where where is China's behavior reasonable? Is uh, is the NBA you know has the NBA capitulated or has the NBA uh, stood up for correct American values? Well, and then there's larger question whether this is the NBA's job to stand up for correct American values, and which which of the values are they standing up for? Freedom of speech or um, or uh, freedom to protest. Um, 
freedom of speech uh and where's it responsibility to lie i mean i don't know the, the the frightening thing is the economic power china has and that's only going to get bigger and it's only going to spread more and the collective way in which all the chinese entities responded against the npa if you just look at this will ripple out as china becomes um, more powerful in the U.S. recedes as a glo- as a global leader, and so if you look at this argument about freedom, to, free speech, and freedom to protest, and freedom to push back against authoritarians, this is a conversation that the counter argument. Who is making the counter argument globally against that? And that's like an open question for the next fifty years. I mean, I just I can't stand the idea of American companies conceding to these like untruths and anti-democratic stances by China just seems like antithetical to American, the American values I want to think that we have. On the other hand, you can see all the corporate... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.